Our text today is Matthew chapter 13, verses 24 through 43. This is the word of the Lord. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore again, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at the harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first, and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat to be put into my barn. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds. But when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. And the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is at the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all the causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be a weeping and a gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. Please be seated. Let's pray. Father, we are so incredibly grateful for your word and our ability to come here today and study it together. And so, Lord, as we do that, we pray that you impress it upon our hearts and our mouths and our minds, that we may carry it with us everywhere we go. And we pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Good morning. It's pretty good. It's pretty high energy considering late nights for many of you. Do you know one of the most common questions asked, and it's a serious question, by non-believers to believers as like a proof text that God does not exist? Do you know what that question is usually surrounds, or what, what it surrounds around usually? It's usually around the question of evil. They'll ask something like, if God is so good... Why do good things, or sorry, why do bad things happen to good people? I was going to say the way you really should ask it. Calvin would have said, why do good things happen to bad people? That was what was stuck in my mind. But they would ask, they would ask, if God is so good, why do bad things happen to good people? Why are kids murdered? Why is there genocide? Why does abuse exist? If God is so good and so loving, why would he allow evil to prosper at times, or at least appear to prosper at times? I, 
asked these very same questions when I claimed not to believe in God. I used them as my solid refutation that God was not real. And I thought they were solid, but it turns out, it turns out that they're not. Because the problem of evil has been around, well, since Genesis 3. <laughs> since the very beginning, right? Since pretty much the very beginning of mankind, we've been dealing with the problem of evil. And why is that? It's because of one man's sin. You see, one man's sin has been imputed on all of us, Romans 5, 12. Just, uh, sorry, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. And we know this. We talk about this over and over again. The Bible is very clear about this. Because sin is part of the human experience. Sin is real. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things. So we need to keep this in mind as we study this parable of the wheat and the tares, or the wheat and the weeds, as the ESV calls it. And it's, we're going to look at the parable of the wheat and the tares, and then it's going to be interrupted by the parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the leaven. And so this is a pretty long set of verses. I, I have to chuckle because my pastor, co-pastor, whatever at my last church told me you should never read more than eight verses from the pulpit because you'll lose people, and that was like, I don't know, 24. <laughs> But it is a lot of verses, but I think it's really important to, to look at this in its entirety, to be able to take a look at the parable of the weed and the tares, and then look at the parable of the mustard seed and the leaven, and the explanation of the, the weed and the tares. That's how it goes in order of the text. And it's a really beautiful way to look at this. And of course, God didn't set any of this up <laughs> accidentally, right? This wasn't put together this way accidentally. This is put this way on purpose, because what, what's going to happen is first Jesus is going to tell us about the reality of the sin problem here on earth. He's not going to sugarcoat it. He's going to be very clear about the difference between believers and unbelievers and the penalty and the fact that sin exists. But then he's going to provide us with a great hope, the great hope and the power, the power of the kingdom of God. And, that's when he's, and then after that, he's going to explain the parable of the wheats and the tares. So here's the way I want to kind of splice this today for us. What I want to do is look at wheats and tares first, look at the parable, and look at Jesus' explanation. And then we're going to look at the mustard seed and the leaven. And then I'm going to conclude this with the promises of God. Okay? So try to keep this a little bit orderly for us, and so that we can really focus on the promises of God. I mentioned last night and earlier today, I've been reading a lot of Francis Schaeffer in the last week. And one of the comments that Francis Schaeffer makes in his, in his text and his writings continuously he comes back to is, do we actually believe the promises of God? Like That is the question that we need to be asking ourselves, that you need to be asking yourselves as we go through this text today. Do you believe the promises of God? Because we are people here, declaratively as a church, that believe God's word to be true. We believe it to be true and sufficient and inerrant which means that we believe the promises in Scripture are true, which then means we should be living as such. So part of this examination as we go through the text today, I want you to be thinking about, do I believe in the promises of God, and am I living like I believe in the promises of God? Because to understand and experience the hope of Jesus Christ, you must believe in the promise of Jesus Christ. 
So Jesus begins this parable, wheat and weeds, weed and tares, right on the heels of the parable of the sower. And if you remember last week, we looked at the parable of the sower, which looked at soil. We talked about the fact that if you have good soil, you get good fruit. That was your agricultural lesson for last week. And we talked about also the deeper meaning of this, about the real gospel that is rooted deeply in good soil and gospels that are not, uh, an outright rejection of the gospel or the experience-only gospel or the convenience gospel versus the true gospel. All other gospels, little g's, they are a road that leads directly to hell. But the true gospel, planted in good seed, has good roots and really good foundations. So, in the parable of the sower, Jesus looks at the responses to the gospel. In this parable, we're going to look at what it looks like to have unbelievers in the midst of the world, and ultimately what happens to them. Verses 24 through 30 again. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came, and sowed weeds among the wheat, and went away. So when plants came up and bore grain, the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came to him and said, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then you don't want us to go? Oh, sorry, then do you want us to go and gather them? And he said, No. Lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until harvest. And at the harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. <coughs> but gather the wheat into my barn. Excuse me. <coughs> you see, Jesus is using, like last week, an illustration that would have made a lot of sense to the people that were hearing this. The, the weeds that Jesus is referring to, commonly called tares, T-A-R-E-S, in a lot of other translations, these, these tares, these weeds, are from, I don't know if I'll pronounce this right, Zizanion. Zizanion. It's a variety of Darnell weed that closely resembles wheat. Now, I know you all know this in your agricultural backgrounds. I did not. A variety of Darnell weed that closely resembles wheat and almost is impossible to distinguish until the wheat ripens and bears grain. This was like the ultimate spite amongst farmers. So if you really, really wanted to get revenge on, on your local wheat farmer... Maybe you guys have a beef. Can you have a beef? Would it be over a cow? If, if you had a beef with a wheat farmer? I don't know how this works. You have a beef with a wheat farmer, and so you, you want to take revenge, which is a non-Christian thing to do. What you would go do if you wanted to cause some trouble to your fellow is you would take these tares and you would sow them amongst the wheat. So you'd sneak into this guy's field at night with a sack full of seed, and you would wreak havoc on his crop by sowing tares amongst the wheat. And, and like I said, when I define this, the problem is, is that the tares, the tares, are indistinguishable from the wheat until all of the plants are fully matured. So you've got these farmers that are looking out and they're looking at their wheat field. I want to say wheat all the time. It's like so bad. Wheat, why do you say cool whip? It's just like emphasis on the whip, wheat. So they're going out, they're watching their field grow, and it looks great, and all of a sudden it comes time for a harvest, and it's like, oh boy, that is not wheat in my field. This was a huge, jerky, vengeful thing to do. 
It's actually evil because you've impacted somebody, somebody's ability to make product, to make an income, right? This is how you would be incredibly spiteful. Less wheat, less money, less wheat, less food. So how do the servants respond in this? They see this and they immediately say, we got to go do something. We need to react. They're anxious to fix it. They've seen the problem. They're freaking out. They go tell their master, what do you want us to do? And what does the master tell him? He says, you need to have patience. You need to have patience. You're going to have to wait until the harvest because that way we'll be able to clearly, clearly separate the good from the bad. We don't want to take any of the good. We've got bad sowed in here now, which means we don't have as big of a crop. We don't want to even risk losing any of the good crop while we separate out the bad. So first, you're going to go out and you're going to gather all the weeds, all the tares, and then you're going to bundle them up and you're going to burn them. And then you're going to take the good crop and you're going to store it in the barn. So we see the pretty simple meaning here. If the enemy sows tares with the wheat, have some patience, and then wait until the harvest, separate the weeds and burn them, and then store the good wheat. Simple as that. There's your agricultural lesson from Christ Church this morning, and I hope you have a good day. But you know that the parables, like ogres, are onions, and they have layers. I really want to watch Shrek again. They have layers. So obviously this isn't just merely agricultural advice that Jesus is giving. He's not just telling them an illustration so that they can become better farmers. He's providing advice for them and for us about dealing with ultimately the problem of evil. So if we skip down to verses 36 through 43, Jesus goes on to explain the parable of the wheat and the weeds. It says, Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parables of the weeds of the field. And he answered, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and will burn with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and all lawbreakers, uh, sorry, the Son of Man, Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be a weeping and a gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. So he's gone and he's spoken. Remember, when he's speaking these parables, it's to the multitudes. Now he's, he's retreated back to the house, wherever they're at, and his disciples actually give him an imperative. The imperative is, explain this to us. And, and, and listen to the words that they say to him. Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. Words are important. They didn't say, explain to us the parable of the wheat and the weeds in the field. They said, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. They know, they know that the weeds, the tares is the important part that they need to be focusing on. And so they want more information. We, we want to understand. Like, this is sticking out to them. So they want the onion peeled back. And Jesus gives it to them so clearly. He says, listen, the Son of Man is the one who sows the good seed. The field is the whole world. And the good seed are those sons and daughters of Christ's kingdom that go out into the world. And the weeds, the tares, are those who do not believe, those who are in Satan, who are not in Christ. If you're not in Christ, you're in Satan. 
the devil sows in their hard hearts in the bad soil. And then he says, at the end of time, at the end of the age, the judgment, when Christ returns, there's a harvest. Judgment will take place. Christ's angels. And the angels of Jesus will separate the believers from the unbelievers. They'll separate the wheat from the tares. And the unbelievers go to hell. And the believers are reunited with Christ for eternity in his kingdom. And then he uses that phrase that we talked about last week, he who has ears, let him hear. See, what, what he's telling us is the truth of the matter. And the truth of the matter is there is evil in the world. There is unbelief in the world. And there will be judgment. There will be final, ultimate judgment at the end of the age. And that's reality. What I found interesting when I was studying this is that the commentators really look at this from two perspectives. And I actually think these two perspectives are really one, that they actually are the same thing. But it's really around the field. What's the field? Is the field the church? Is the field the world? John Calvin talks about the field specifically as the church. Hypocrites sowed in the midst of believers, people that look like believers but really aren't. The tares among the wheat. We talked about this a little bit last week as well. Maybe they say the right things. They act what appears to be the right way. They might even have cutesy Christian stickers on their car or on the wall or whatever the thing is. But they're not actual believers. They're bad seed sowed by the devil, but they look like it. They look like it. But you can't really tell until maturity. And Calvin says, But as soon as Christ gathered a small flock for himself, many hypocrites mingle with it. Persons of immoral lives creep in. Nay, Many wicked men insinuate themselves, in consequence of which numerous stains pollute that holy assembly, which Christ has separated for himself. Many persons, too, look upon it as exceedingly absurd that ungodly or profane or unprincipled men should be cherished within the bosom of the church. There's hypocrites inside these walls. And then there are people outside the walls that look in and say, why would they let the hypocrites in? We know those people to be hypocrites. And he's not wrong. We warn all the time about hypocrisy within the church. So Calvin refers to the field as the church. But I actually don't think that's exactly what Jesus means. He says world. And I looked up the Greek word, because if you really want to understand what Jesus said, the Greek is very helpful. And I gave an allusion to this to those of you who were here last night. The Greek word is cosmos. Have you ever heard that word before? Probably heard that word before. What does it usually refer to when we hear the word cosmos? It's okay. You can shout out. It's Presbyterian, but we'll allow it. What is it? The universe, right. The cosmos. I think it was a TV show, right? Wasn't Sagan's program the cosmos or something? But we know this word. The word that we use for cosmos is a Greek word, which means everything. The whole universe. Everything con uh, contained within it. Greek, Greek, everywhere. You didn't know you were going to use so much Greek in your daily lives. What he's saying is that everywhere is under Christ's authority. It's exactly what we talked about this morning at Sunday school. The whole universe, all of creation, that is the field that Jesus gets to sow. The whole universe will have weeds and wheat. The whole universe will have tares and wheat. Now, I look at this as the world, and I actually think Calvin's next comment in his commentary supports this as well. He says, in my opinion, the design of the parable is simply this. 
so long as the pilgrimage of the church in this world continues, bad men and hypocrites will mingle in it with those who are good and upright, that the children of God may be armed with patience, there's that word again, and in the midst of offenses which are fitted to disturb them may persevere unbroken steadfastness of faith. So he's talking about the church, but this applies everywhere. This applies everywhere in our lives. It applies at work, it applies at home, it applies everywhere in our life. There are, there are true and righteous people, and there are people that appear to be good, that are, that are sown in, that we can't see the fruits of those things until later. I mean, some things are really bad right away, bad soil, bad seed, but, but there are others that we don't get to tell until maturity. Bad mingling with good, and many times not knowing about it later. Think about some of the horrific stories you may have read on the news or seen on Dateline where people legitimately like, that guy seemed really nice. That woman seemed really nice. I can't believe they drowned all the kids in the minivan in the lake. Right? There can be good and there can be bad sewn in with the good. And what Calvin says, what we want to hold on to is he says that the children of God need to be armed with patience. They need to be armed with patience in the very midst of offenses which disturb them. Satan builds these things to disturb the believers of God. Satan's purpose is to separate the believer from God. And it's not, when we talk about this, Satan's real. It, the reason that temptation and sin is so dangerous isn't, is because we, we start to rationalize it like it's an okay behavior. Satan doesn't just paint it like, this is really awful, so go do it. Satan actually paints it because he comes bathed as an angel of light, as a deceiver. He says, it's not that bad. You just probably misinterpreted what God said. It feels good. You should probably do it. His purpose is to separate the believer from God. So he's going to mimic things that are God-like, that aren't godly. God creates bees. They bring us honey and joy, and then Satan created wasps. What God creates, Satan mimics. I'm standing by that, too. We popped open the beehive yesterday, and there was one wasp, like, hovering around poor Tristan. The bees couldn't have cared less. But Satan's job is to separate the believer from God by making it look like it's not from Satan. So that's why there's tares amongst the wheat. Why the tares look like they could be godly. Because Satan is a deceiver. And how are we to respond? We are to be patient. That's like if there's a word that keeps coming up this whole week for me, it's patience. Patience. We are to be patient. Why? Because we trust in the ultimate judge, right? We trust in the ultimate justice. Why we're never to have revenge or take vengeance because we believe in the ultimate justice of God. Family, heaven and hell are real, and the evil go to hell. If you're not in Jesus, you go to hell. That, that's why the disciples are asking about the weeds, why they're asking about the tares. They know something's really important in what Jesus' words. You bind the tares and then you burn them? Tell us more about these weeds. Tell us more about these tares. So they're worried. They want to know what the Son of Man has to tell them. And he tells them that if you don't believe in Jesus, you go to hell. And I remember reading something or hearing something. It could have been at school or a book or I don't know. But somebody said, well, do you really think that it's a literal gnashing of teeth? And the particular theologian replied, does it matter? 
if it's literal, it sounds awful. And if it's a metaphor, it means it's worse than it sounds, so you probably don't want it. Like, both of those sound terrible. You don't want hell. And I think we make fun about it, make fun of it, because it's so serious and it's so overwhelming that we kind of joke about it and we turn it into a caricature. But, but the reality is, we don't want hell. And hell is real and it is eternal and it is awful. And that's what happens to those who are not in faith, because there will be a final judgment. Because evil will be dealt by God. For us to be in joy and suffering, we have to believe that God is just and will deal with evil. Family, here's the reality. And it can seem discouraging, but it's, it's actually encouraging and it's also truthful. We cannot eradicate all evil. We here cannot eradicate all evil. That, though, is not a call to inaction. Knowing reality is not a call to inaction. Calvin's promises or Calvin's comments about the requirement for patience is not a call to inaction. It's actually a call to action. It's a call to action within the reality of a sinful world. We have to take action, but we also have to be patient. Because as kingdom builders, it takes time. We're hopeful people because we believe in the ultimate judgment that will come from God, that will separate the wheat and the tares. We don't know when that will be. And so we're kingdom builders. We're doing things on earth as it is in heaven, and it takes time. It requires patience. Our problem, one of our problems as finite beings, is our event horizon is this far. We have a very narrow view. I think it's why your friend could ask, is it getting better? Because we look this far, and we look outside, and we see this, and we see tragedy, and we see terribleness, and then we get, we get filled with it with the news and with the newspapers and the social medias and family members that just want to tell you about people that die all the time. But our view is this short. The big view. The big view. is So much more positive. And the big view requires patience. Last night, I read through part of the Exodus story. We know the ending, but can you imagine when Moses was going through all of that? Do you think it felt glorious every time Pharaoh's heart was hardened? Sometimes we only get to see these things in the rearview mirror. So we have to be patient because we have a narrow view of time. But the hope is we're optimistic. We build for the future. We know, we know because God has told us what life without him means, means eternal damnation and hell. We don't bring people to faith through fear. Sinners need to repent, obviously, but just fire and brimstone, the reality is hell is torture. But, but that's not the motivation for faith in Christ. Right? The motivation for faith in Christ is to live a joyous life reborn, which makes us optimistic. People who build for the future, which requires patience. It requires patience as we fight evil. We will continue to fight evil, but we need patience while we are doing it. And this can feel hopeless at times. The knowledge that evil will be here until Christ's return, until the end of this age. And I think that's how you can easily fall into that trap of loser theology that we've been talking about. Because you're like, well, God's clear, there'll be a battle, there's going to be suffering, there's going to be difficulty. <sighs> Over it. Sometimes there's going to be evil mixed in with the good. 
It's going to look good. You're going to find out afterwards it was evil. This can feel hopeless. And that's what Satan wants you to think. He wants you to buy the lie that we only win in heaven. Satan would like nothing more than Christians to take no action now and buy into the lie that you only win in heaven, that you can't make a difference now. And I'd actually imagine that people hearing the parable, especially the wheat and the tares, probably felt the same way. Oh man, there's good, there's, sorry, there's bad, something with the good, and you don't find out until the end, and oh, am I good, am I bad, what's going on? Who is? This doesn't sound very hopeful. So look at what Jesus tells them right after he tells them the parable of the wheat and the tares. He says in verses 31 through 32, he said, he put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree. So the birds of the air can make nests in its branches. He gives them, us, hope. He tells them that the kingdom of heaven isn't some far-off place, but actually here, right here and now, it was there and then as well, here and now, and will be future. It's like a mustard seed. Now, evidently, I read this in a commentary, I learned things. This parable has been used as a refutation by some people, not a very good one, say, ha ha, the Bible's a lie. They say, it's full of lies, see? The mustard seed is not the smallest seed ever. We have found smaller seeds. Ha <laughs> Lies. And larger than garden plants. Ha! <laughs> There's larger plants than come out of a mustard than, than come out of smaller seeds than a mustard seed. Lies, lies, lies. I didn't even know that I was thinking. I read a commentary that was refuting this. Well, here's the reality. In the first century in Palestine, the mustard seed was probably the smallest seed they had. And the mustard tree there grew into kind of a bush, firm tree situation that was strong enough to hold a bird's nest. So that controversy, air quotes, which I don't think is a controversy, we've now officially settled that. It was settled right here in Christ Church. Because the illustration is more important than pretend controversy over seeds. Regardless of your knowledge of seeds in the first century, What it's saying is that a really tiny thing produces something ginormous. A tiny seed can grow a big bush or a big tree. I mean, y'all know this. An apple seed can turn into an apple tree. So you're, as we've expanded gardening, we, Kristen, expanded our gardening, watching how things like the carrots and the peas and the watermelon, this is the coolest thing. These watermelon, they're about this big right now, sitting in the back. They're so cool. Out of tiny seeds trees that grow out of tiny seeds, human beings that grow out of tiny seeds, not even a clump of cells, tiny, tiny seeds. Big things come from small things. If you haven't thought about the miracle that is growth, childbirth is miraculous, but think about seeds and plants and how there is destruction before there's rebirth. So cool. It's the story of God it is, is programmed into the life of everything. Tonight, you should think about this. Like, seriously, I want you as you're going to bed to meditate on this concept of, of trees and plants and that they come from tiny little seeds that contain information in them that turn into plants. Like, that's... You should spend time tonight 
before you go to bed, wrapping your brain around that miracle. It's incredible. It really, really is incredible. This is what the kingdom of heaven is like. Something tiny that expands into something huge. Small seeds, giant results. And then he talks about leaven. And I love leaven because I love bread. I love everything about bread. Everything. Leaven, beer, bread, beer bread. I just love eating, really. It really sucked being Jewish during Passover when you can't eat leaven for eight days. It's horrible. It's really terrible because leaven is incredible. Verse 33, he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Now, what's interesting is leaven in the Bible is usually used in a negative example. Leaven is, is usually used to talk about how something evil can spread. Because a little bit of leaven leavens the whole thing, right? So many times, biblically, we'll see this example used. It says, well, if you have bad mixed in with the good, it can spread. But that, that's not what Jesus is comparing the leaven to here. So what he's saying is, he's saying that this tiny bit of leaven in a large amount of flour is going to impact everything. And he says, and he says three measures of flour. I know you guys your agricultural backgrounds, know these things already, so bear with me. I did a little bit of research and I learned some things. Three measures is about a bushel. And I know that you guys are all very up-to-date on your bushel-to-pound conversions, but I, again, I did that as well for you, thanks to Sir Google. One bushel is about 60 pounds of wheat, which makes around 42 pounds of flour. That's a lot of flour. 42 pounds of flour. How, how much do those big bags of flour we buy weigh? 20? 30 maybe? I don't even know. By the Costco size bag of flour. What? How much? Are they 50? Okay, so they're 50. So it's bigger, it's, or around, I should say, it's right around the size, a little bit smaller than the Costco bag of flour. That's a lot of flour. And what does he say? That just a little bit of leaven, it impacts all of that flour, a whole bushel of wheat. Small things, giant results. Like that, that's the kingdom of heaven. Small things can have this huge impact. And that's where all the hope is found. The hope is actually in the mustard seed. The hope is in the leaven. That, that small things, that a small church in Denver can do great things in a city that needs it. It's a call to action, not inaction. Family, do you believe in the promises of God? That is the question, isn't it? Do you believe in the promises of God? Do you believe God's word is true? And you have to ask yourself this, and you have to search your heart on this, because it, it, it depends on whether you're in good soil, and whether you're going to get good fruit, and whether you're going to be the good seed, because Jesus is the sower. This here provides you the good soil. If you don't believe in Scripture, you can't actually experience the joy of Christ. If you don't believe in Scripture, you can't experience the joy that comes through faith in Christ, the joy that comes through His kingdom. Mark 1.15, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Like Schaefer said, this is time and space stuff. This isn't just spiritual Gnostic, like search in the cloud stuff. This is actual, real, physical, tangible blessing and joy. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's not just like write out all the crappy times 
and then wait till you die so you get to heaven and it gets better. Now, don't get me wrong, reuniting with God in heaven is going to be incredible. No sin, no evil. But it's so much bigger than that. It's so much bigger than like the, the watch. Just come take me now, Jesus. It's right here and it's right now. Do you believe in the promises of God? You have to ask yourself that. Do you believe that the mustard seed can blossom into the tree? That the bird can make its nest because the tree is so strong? Do you believe that the little bit of leaven, the teeny bit of leaven can impact the whole amount of flour? You are that seed. You are that leaven. All of you make an impact in this world. You do it in the way you interact with people. You do it at your places of employment. You do it with your families. You do it all the time. That's how you're building God's kingdom. One of the, the gentlemen last night was like, hey, what do I do? He's like, you've got to charge. Get up and you preach. Tell people to do things. What about me? And I said, you live it out in your life. You're the seed. You're the leaven in your workplace. You're the representative. Especially for people that don't know any Christians. How you interact with them sets the stage. Do you believe in the promise of God? Yeah, there's evil. And it's overwhelming. Sometimes the evil is unbearable. Especially if the evil is focused at you. Or people that you love. But family, you wear the armor of God. The breastplate of righteousness. The belt of truth. You wear the armor of God to fight evil. Not to like sit on the couch and be a victim of evil. Because you stand for truth. And you do it with patience. Patience is not my spiritual gift. It is, it is something that I am working on continuously. Something where I really have to die to myself continuously about. But you have to remember, we're here to build for a thousand generations. Deuteronomy 7.9 says, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. The Bible uses the word thousand. It means a really long time. God keeps his promise to a thousand generations. He's going to keep his promise to our kids, kids, kids. He's still king over the universe. Then, as he is now, do you believe in the promises of God? Because if you do, then our focus is to go live them out. Because when you do, you get to experience joy. You're not just focused on the gnashing of teeth, the fear of hell. Hell is real. Instead, your focus is on the joy of Christ and building his kingdom to share the joy, to tell people there's another option. There's a better option. There's a freeing option. And the beautiful thing about being a Christian is you're the, the realest realist there can ever be. That was a fun sentence to write. Because you're a realist. You, you acknowledge that there's going to be sin in the world. You can see it. You can actually explain why it's here. And you know the answer on how to fight it. And because of that, you're not hopeless. Because how can you be? You know Jesus. He knows you. He is yours. You are his. He promises you that his kingdom will prosper in space and time. These were promises made in space and time. And it was prophesied that middle, uh, 
right before the end there, 34 through 35, it says, all these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. What are these proof texts? I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. It comes from Psalm 78 too. That's why the Psalms are so important. Jesus is in the Psalms. Psalm 72 says, I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old. So all these proof texts to show that Jesus is the Son of God, which means he does have all authority, which means we have to listen to him, which means if he tells us that the good and the bad will be separated at the end of the age, and the bad will go to hell, and the good will be reunited, that, that's going to happen, which gives us peace and contentment, because then we don't have to worry about it, because we're not the ones taking vengeance, because we trust in God so we can have patience. Christ is who he says he is. He is the Son of God. Do you believe in the promises of God? He promises you a glorious life with Him in space and time right now. Like being reunited together as the family of God. I just read this this morning in one of Schaefer's books. It's not just like the people of God. It's actually here. It's right now. It's us loving each other. It's us loving each other through like really difficult life things that people are going through in this room. And a couple of people that couldn't make it today. Because Space and time are real people doing real life together. God tells us in no uncertain terms that evil will be punished and there will be final judgment. And thank God. That's actually what makes God a good God. Good and evil will be separated. But you've got to be patient. You have to trust. And you have to continue to work. Small things that turn into big things. We live in this city that's just such a mess in so many different ways. So what do we do? Just give up? I'm done. Tap out. <laughs> no. That's actually loser theology. It's easier to give up. Because changing the world takes really, is really hard work. It takes incredible effort. Family, there's evil to be thought, fought. But what, what, what the hope that Jesus has given us today is that these small things can turn into such incredibly big things. Mothers in the room, look at all your big things sitting in chairs. They, they started off as tiny things, and now they're... He stood next to me yesterday. I was like, you're not going to fit in the plane anymore. He's got like two more inches, and we won't be able to close the canopy. He's beast mode. It's so cool. Small things that turn into big things. Think about this tonight. Think about the seed. Think about it grows into to big plants, into trees. Think about redwood trees. Think about the seed that produces a redwood tree. Some of those trees, you can drive through the center of them. It's incredible. Small things can make huge differences. We may not see the difference that we make in Denver. I pray we do. But we're going to fight to bring joy and love to this city because small things make really big differences. Do you believe in the promises of God? If you don't, pray to God to open your heart to his promises. Seriously. He can. God can do everything. And if you do, thank God. Thank God that you know his promises. They're so incredible. They are the reason, literally, that you can have joy in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of suffering that you can laugh in the face of evil. We're going to talk about the joy, or sorry, the hope and laughter on Saturday night this week. 
God's universe is hilarious. Like, it's really funny. There's a lot of really funny stuff. Just look at animals. There's a lot of really funny animals. Can laugh in the face of evil because you know the joy that comes in Christ because you believe, because you believe in the promises of God. So family, let us rejoice in the promises that God has given us and rejoice in our role in building his kingdom in space and time right here and right now. Let's pray. Father, we are so incredibly grateful that you have chosen us. You have picked us from before the foundation of the earth to be yours, to serve your will and to do your work. And so, Lord, we pray that we do that, that we are people of action, but people of patience. It's easy to get frustrated when things don't seem to be going our way, Lord, and so humble us to be patient and kind and generous and giving people, Lord, to be transformative people. May we die every day to ourselves so that we can be reborn in you in all that we do. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.